Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Good afternoon, listeners. This is the DOGS program. The Australian Council for Defence of Government Schools are here every Saturday at 12 noon to defend and to promote public education. We have a website at www.adogs.info where we usually put up every week a new press release. A lot of our press releases, uh, you may notice, are often a commentary on what is going on in our own country, in our political situation, but also in other countries. And we try to bring you information that you would not otherwise get. But this week, we have put our mind to thinking about Serena Russo and Susan Lay, soft lobbying and the future of the government's education agenda. The revelation of the questionable travel expenses of the Health Minister, Susan Lay, who I believe is a member for Albury, so why she spends so much time in the Gold Coast since 2013, I think listeners it has something to do with her husband, have exposed two additional and very interesting facts. There's been a tremendous amount of hoo-ha about this and a lot of moralising by various people, but... There are two very interesting facts that have come out if you read between the lines or even read the lines of the reports on this matter. Firstly, we are confronted with her ability to purchase an investment property on the Gold Coast on May the oh, sorry, the ninth of May two thousand and fifteen on a whim, although she had finance arranged beforehand. And she bought it from childcare operator Martin Corkery, who's one of the Queensland Liberal National Party's biggest and individual donors in 2011, she bought this. Now, this puts Lay into the aspirational class of rent seekers at a time when millennials are increasingly frozen out of the housing market by investors who are using, like Lay, negative gearing. And, of course, she and her party are refusing to look at the negative gearing situation, tax situation. Now, secondly, and this is more relevant, Lay has explained that the two trips she claimed over New Year's Eve in 2013 and 2014 were at the invitation of a prominent Queensland businesswoman to discuss the Coalition's agenda for education and training. So that's what raised my interest and the dog's interest. And then you find that Simon Birmingham, who's the Federal Minister for Education, defending Lay and saying on Radio National that he did not believe she had breached the Ministerial Code of Contact and extensive travel was a clear part of her responsibilities. So in 2013 and 14, she was up talking to this wealthy businessman on the Gold Coast about education and training. So who is this lady? This businesswoman, this wealthy businesswoman, is Serena Russo, a very good friend of Susan Lay. And she's a multimillionaire. How did she make her multimillions? Like Mrs Rudd, this lady made these 
multi-millions out of the privatisation of the once exceedingly well-run Commonwealth Employment Service, the CES. Remember it, listeners? It was privatised in the 1990s. Now, the marketisation and the privatisation of this once estimable public service has resulted in the highest youth unemployment rate since the 1930s depression in this country. And here we have Susan Lay justifying her taxpayer-funded travel to a business lunch and an annual New Year's event to have business conversations that were important conversations to the future of our government's agenda. Now, that's from the Financial Review on the 10th of the 1st, 2017, page 1. And listeners, that is a very straightforward report in the Financial Review, which is read by the business personnel of this nation. But dogs pose the following questions. Why is Serena Russo soft-lobbying Susan Lay about education and training? What does she want? Does she, um, as a multimillionaire, millions being made from what was once a Commonwealth service, want to make further millions out of further privatisation of the TAFE sector? Or does she, as a multimillionaire, she might have some of her multimillions in hedge funds, have an eye on American developments and charter schools for Australia? And are government policies in education in this country made through this kind of soft Lobbying. Well, I'm using this term soft lobbying, listeners. What is it? It's a new term that I came across this week in the Financial Review and in The Age. So I thought that I'd take you a little bit further into the chats around Susan Lay and Serena Russo and Julie Bishop to find out what soft lobbying is. Some insight into the way the business class looks at the way decisions are made in government is found in a fascinating article which appeared in The Age of Thursday, January the 12th, 2017, page 4 of the news section. The article is by Melissa Singer and it's entitled... A minister in the marquee trumps any D-list celebs. Now, the particular coalition minister in the Melbourne Cup marquee was not Susan Lee. No, she goes to the Gold Coast for that. But the foreign minister, Julie Bishop. Melissa Singer argued that the most widely published non-equine photo of the recent Melbourne Cup was the foreign minister when she had, quote, a brief tete-a-tete with mining magnate and social recluse Gina Reinhardt. So now we know how government business is really done in Australia these days. Melissa Singer continues with the following rationale given by our politicians for rubbing shoulders with the real power in our so-called democracy. At the time, Ms Bishop told Melissa that attending events such as the Melbourne Cup was, quote, all part of the job. Being at the Cup is the most fantastic networking opportunity Everyone in Australia you want to see is there. Well, I don't know about you, listener. I'm not sure that I want to see anyone much that's at the Melbourne Cup, but um, then it's not terribly important who I would want. But this is the lady who is the foreign minister of this country. Everyone that you want to see, that's the Julie Bishop wants to see, is there. A former senior government advisor said that was about there was a value in politicians being in the same room or tent as the nation's business leaders. 
because the opportunity for soft lobbying, and here we have the word, the opportunity for soft lobbying in these situations was highly valuable. And politicians usually got to see the guest list so they know who will likely target them for a pull-aside diplo-speak for a quiet chat. So, soft lobbying is the pull-aside of politicians by the powerful and wealthy. Diplo-speak for a quiet chat. Don't you love the in-talk listeners? And this is how our so-called democracy is now working, with politicians leaving behind the welfare of the majority as they go round in ever smaller circles with the right people in the right network at taxpayers' expense. And this is how the coalition's education agenda is being influenced. Is it any wonder that voters particularly parents and teachers and others who are concerned about the children in our public schools are deserting the major parties for fringe dwellers on the political spectrum as they hope against hope that such people might see their legitimate concerns as important. So that, dear listeners, was our work for this week. For three years, teachers have had their qualifications, their pay, their pensions and their working conditions attacked relentlessly by this government. We're proud product of a government-funded primary school education and of a government-funded secondary school education. Australia is one of the richest and luckiest countries in the world and there's no reason whatsoever why we can't have the very best public schools in the world. It's simply not good enough that kids with disability miss out. Our education is not for profit. Our education is not for profit. You're listening to The Dogs, the defence of government schools on 3CR. We're back here on 3CR on The Dogs Programme for a little bit of news from the United States, which we get quite a lot of in in Australia at the moment. Um, It's a very interesting situation over there where the mainstream media is very much against the uh, the president on the whole, um, but they seem to have very little power. But in Louisiana, there's some good news for public education uh, promoters. The court has ruled... State-approved charters are unconstitutional. A major legal blow was struck against charter schools in Louisiana as a state court ruled that they cannot be funded with money intended for public schools unless they were authorised by districts and such schools are not public schools. Louisiana's funding of certain types of charter schools hit a snag following a ruling Monday, last Monday, from a state First Circuit Court of Appeal panel that in a 3-2 decision ruled unconstitutional the Louisiana Department of Education and the State Board of Elementary and Secondary Education support such schools with local and state tax dollars. It overturns the May 2015 decision from Baton Rouge State District Judge Wilson Fields, who originally heard the arguments for the lawsuit from the Louisiana Association of Educators against BESC and the Department of Education. A separate lawsuit from the Iberville Parish School Board over funding of a Type 2 charter school in that parish was consolidated with the case. So in this case, the Catholic schools don't like the charter schools either. This is a significant victory in defending the right of every child in Louisiana to attend a quality public school. LAE President Debbie Moe said in a written statement, it's crucial for the state to adequately fund the institutions where the vast majority of Louisiana's students learn and a majority of Louisiana's students learn in public school classrooms. So there you are. The... um, the charter school people, of course, expressed disappointment and complained that there was a lot of politics at play. 
She said that they joined the case on behalf of the Type 2 charter schools that we represent and we always considered it to be a very important case that would be heard before the Louisiana court. So that is uh, a bit of light in the American darkness. Meanwhile, the New York Times editorial is warning further on Betty DeVos. We've been talking about Betty DeVos, who's the uh, Education Secretary, uh, who is like uh, Serena Russo, a very, very, very wealthy lady uh, with a long track record uh, in education, unlike uh, Betty, unlike Serena Russo. However, um, her track record in education has got nothing to do with her having anything to actually do with schools themselves, but with promotion of the privatisation of education and charter schools. In its editorial about the Senate's rush to confirm Betty DeVos, the Times acknowledges that charters are not a cure for educational problems. Now, this is very interesting because the New York Times has been promoting charters and suddenly it's had a turn of um, change of heart. For, because for the past four, 20 years, uh, Diana Ravitch tells us, the New York Times has fawned over charter schools more in its editorials than in its reporting, however. But the editors have come around to the thinking of a lot of their own reporters because of Betty DeVos. Beyond raising concerns about her many possible financial conflicts, Ms DeVos also faces a big challenge in explaining the damage that she's done to public education in her home state, Michigan. She's poured money into charter schools, advocacy, winning legislative changes that have reduced oversight and accountability. And about 80% of the charter schools in Michigan are operated by for-profit companies, far higher than for anywhere else. She's also argued for shutting down Detroit public schools with the system turned over to charters or taxpayer money given out as vouchers for private schools. And in that city, charter schools often perform no better than traditional schools and sometimes, of course, they're much worse. So this is all very interesting. The Times has gone up a very steep learning curve on this topic. Now, if only the editorial writers can continue to understand that school choice is not a cure for low-performing students, not even a Band-Aid, as voters in Massachusetts showed last November when they rejected a proposal to expand the number of charters. The main effect of charters is to drain resources from existing schools and slicing up the education budget into multiple sectors impoverishes them all and enriches only the corporations that operate charters. Listeners, I will read that again because we can transfer that over to what has happened in Australia. Slicing up the educational budget. And that is what we have done here in Australia. We have diverted billions of dollars of the educational budget in this country into private enterprises. These private enterprises are largely run in this country by huge religious corporations like the Roman Catholic Church and the Anglican Church and others. But nevertheless, they are privately run and they are multiple sectors. And the education budget in this country has been sliced and the people who have suffered are the children in the public schools because it impoverishes them all and we've seen this because our international rankings have gone down in education and it only enriches the corporations that operates them. And the Roman Catholic Church, particularly in this country, has been enormously enriched to the point where with their university, which now has seven campuses, the Australian Catholic University, the one here in Fitzroy can expand and go straight to VCAT and not even give the local people, the local residents, any rights whatever at the council level. So um, that's all from me for the moment.
Welcome back to the Dogs Program here on 3CR 855 on the AM dial. That was a bit of George Frederick Handel to cheer us all up. Um, yes, we are the defenders of government schools. Thank you very much, Jane. Um, I'd like to talk about something else, though. Um, it, well, something else. Something obviously related to education, funding Australia and the horrors of what we're living through at the moment. But sort of a small glow of hope. There was an interesting article written oh, last week, I think it was, by Kelsey Munro in the Sydney Morning Herald. Interesting article because it sort of draws comparisons between contemporary Australia and Germany. Germany about 16 years ago. Um, About 16 years ago in the year 2000, um, the PISA tests, P-I-S-A, international comparison tests from country to country about who's doing well and who's doing not when it comes to educating the children of their nations. Um, In 2000... The results of the PISA tests in Germany um, stunned the nation. Um, In Germany, the economic powerhouse that still continues today, the homeland of Goethe, Herndinger, Einstein, Heidegger, Heigl, Nietzsche, all those great minds, um, famous around the world. It's famous, actually, in Germany, obviously, for their engineering. They make cars, obviously, (laughs) and various other things, and innovation. They almost won two world wars. Yeah, they didn't. They almost did. Almost did. Anyway, they found that in Germany in the year 2000, um, the kids in Germany were getting a very poor education compared to the OECD average. The nation was stunned. A quarter of its young people in the year 2000 were functionally illiterate and innumerate. Now, Deutschland um, was dismayed at this time. The nation's education leaders all got together and said, we've got to do something. And by 2012, Germany had pushed its PISA results well above the OECD average. So they'd gone from below to above because they got together and said, someone should do something. And they did something. Now, there's a lesson for Australia in this. And I'm now quoting from an article written by Kelsey Munro, published on January 7th in 2017 in the Sydney Morning Herald. The article was entitled Our Bad Report Report Card Holds an Opportunity Too Good to Miss. Now, research suggested in Germany that inequality was the main driver of poor results, exacerbated by the ghettoisation of migrants. Funding per student was equal, according to the OECD education, but under Schleicher, was the outcomes were far from it. This is due to the national, natural, I should say, disadvantages of some kids compared with others. If they're learning in a second language or have a disability, for example, a system that aims at equality of outcomes has to provide extra resources to lift up the kids. And with what we will stereotype as ruthless Germanic efficiency... Germany turned things around by tackling structural inequalities and indeed inequities in the high school system, 
investing in early childhood education and closing the equity gap by focusing resources on the most disadvantaged students. That's it. Focusing resources on the most disadvantaged students benefited the nation. They're able to do this, of course, because they don't have a private school system with wealthy schools that have to receive billions of dollars of taxpayers' money. They could actually look at what was happening in their public system and improve matters there. Of course, in Germany, they don't have the same bifurcation of systems that we have in Australia, so they were not handicapped, indeed, by an overfunded and obese private school system in Germany, so they didn't actually have to um, deal with that at all. But as Kelsey Munro points out, and I think you'll be pleased, Jean, that she agrees with what you're saying, the Australian results from the 2015 PISA results and other tests confirm worrying trends in Australia. Both the real and relative student performance is declining. Studies in maths, technology, engineering um, and capacity is also slipping and inequality in Australia is rising at the same time. Students in Australia from disadvantaged schools on average are three years, um, in some cases five, but three years at least, behind their most advantaged counterparts. Our best students are still among the world's best, but the spread is far wider. Inequality is dragging down our PISA results. Now, the way we fund schools in Australia is funding inequity rather than mitigating it. For over a decade, money has flowed to the wrong places and the wrong policies. That's because we have a school funding system that is a mess of sweetheart deals for special interests and historical curios, unburdened by logic and unburdened by fairness. There is an overflowing of wealthy schools and an underfunding of disadvantaged schools. Without change, $2 billion in taxpayer funds over the next decade will continue to flow to schools that are already overfunded. It's not so much a camel designed by a committee as an engine assembled by, in the dark by Amish people. It's not working well. The most comprehensive solution to the problem presented in a generation, the, 20, the 2011 Review of Funding for Schools report, universally known in Australia as the Gonski Review, is potentially just weeks away now from its political grave. Um, the New South Wales Education Minister, Adrian Piccoli, says, and I quote, this is a really critical moment to get the funding right. Now, he also says the Gonski report lives and dies in the next three months. We're either as a country going to run with it or we're going to drop it. And ultimately, that's going to be the decision made by the Commonwealth. Well, Mr Gonski isn't dead yet. He may, in fact, because he's a friend of Mr Turnbull's, become the um, chief of the board of the ABC. Interesting. Oh, he picks up jobs, doesn't he? Mm. He often described himself. In fact, I've heard him describe himself as a courtier. Well, I wish, I wish he would do plenty of soft lobbying on behalf of the public school system because there doesn't seem to be anybody else that the uh, Turnbull government feels is worth networking and soft lobbying with, is there? No. Now, the current arrangement, uh, the Gonski arrangement, expires at the end of 2017. So the Prime Minister, Premiers and Education Ministers have just a few short months to come up with a new deal for schools in April before the May budget. Right now, we have political gridlock. No one seems to want to meet anyone else in the middle. States, including New South Wales, that signals a deal with the Julia Gillard Labor government for six years of additional Gonski money from 2014, are holding out for that original deal. But Western Australia says it should get more money than it does and should not be punished for funding its schools better than the other states have. Now, the federal government, which first tried under Tony Abbott the surprise move of completely ditching Gonski altogether before backflipping and offering a shrunk-down version in the 2016 budget, said there'll be no further money for forthcoming. In, a, in an added complication, the Commonwealth has signalled it wants to find a new way to carve up the pie to make up for states like Western Australia and South Australia getting less federal funding per student than they have in the past. 
If this happened in the eastern states, then they would lose up to a billion dollars over the next four years, and it would effectively exacerbate funding inequities between schools, according to the Grattan Institute's Peter Goss. You can bet ministers in Queensland, New South Wales and Victoria are disinclined to sign a deal that benefits Western Australia and South Australia. And then they'll say that we have a crisis and the private sector has got to come in and save us from it. Well, perhaps not to contradict you, but to say that this article suggests that the Catholic sector would actually lose out too um, if there's a change in the deal and all of a sudden um, Gillard's original promise of no school getting less, um, if that changes which is why they, the Catholic sector has been particularly vocal in its irritation at the lack of clarity over funding. They're starting to get a little bit worried Well, well they'll just have a special deal of their own because they are experts in the soft lobbying game. Well, if the 20 years of history that we've been over, well, that I've been overseeing here on the DOGS program is anything to go by, the Catholic sector need not worry itself overly. <laughs> now, the federal government could ignore the states and take the new education plan directly to Parliament. But with Labor, the Greens, Nick Xenophon's independents and Jackie Lambie expressing their public support for, and I quote, the full Gonski, they're unlikely to find much joy there. Without an amenable Senate or a deal with the states, it appears the Gillard era legislation will stand. So the federal government's rather boxed in, unless they roll over and find the extra money, which they insist is not going to happen, or the states do, which which they won't either. So we're still at an impasse. The frustration of educators concerning, concerned with improving Australia's schools at a systemic level is that politicians of both stripes have hobbled the best chance the country has for major education reform in a generation. While the politicians have dawdled and squabbled over fixing problems identified six years ago, another generation of kids has just left high school. The Gonski Review identified disadvantage and inequity as major drivers of Australia's declining performance in 2011 and laid out an evidence-based long-term plan to fix it. It enjoyed consensus support across school sectors from both sides of politics and in most states. It didn't have to be preposterously expensive, although some increased funding was required. Then, Gillard made the political inoculation of the decision by saying that no school would lose a dollar, which made Gonski suddenly a lot more expensive, and then the consensus began to crumble. With its allergic reaction to anything proposed by Labor, even the good ideas, the Federal Coalition has always been rather lukewarm on tackling inequity in the system. The Coalition prefers to talk about other things. It's in their DNA to have inequity. (laughs) Well, the Coalition, of course, doesn't like to talk about that. They like to talk about the quality of teachers, engaging parents, and strengthening curriculum. And all, they all get a lot more emphasis on the needs-based funding that is neither slim... And, and, in fact, the Coalition, in a rather slim policy document called the Quality Schools Quality Outcomes uh, that was released with the last budget. But... Here we go. But... Education Minister, some in Birmingham, has since reiterated that he wants a needs-based funding model, <laughs> albeit, albeit one with special conditions. <laughs> <sighs> so, is there a way forward? Well, it's obviously not the German solution, where everyone gets together and says, we've got to do something, and then they do something, and then it's done. Oh, no. <laughs> but, but the Grattan Institute came up with a rather ingenious compromise late last year which would get all schools to their needs-based funding target by about 2023. It does so by lowering the indexation rates on funding increases to a rate closer to the actual wage growth. The money freed up, because you're not overfunding the rich schools quite as much as they used to, gets redistributed, and it doesn't cost any more money than the Turnbull government said it would like to pay. Now, to do this, a handful of overfunded schools will get less money, Those in the middle would have their fundings grow slower and particularly disadvantaged schools will see their funds grow much faster. Birmingham, in Parliament, called it a thoughtful contribution. 
But Collins said it would be moving the goalposts mid-game and shrinking the quantum of additional Gonski funding from what was agreed. He says, and I quote, Gonski laid out the, st the strategy that we're adopting and you need to give it 10 years. We're currently in, f in the fourth year, so we've got to keep going. So yes, yes, even just the idea of taking a small amount of money over an overfunded wealthy private school isn't something that any politician in the federal sphere, or indeed state sphere, is willing to countenance. Now, in Germany, after the 2000 Pisa shock, state and federal leaders got together and agreed on a set of common standards and reforms. They stuck with it, it took 10 years, and it worked. Here in Australia, well, it's one of those Canberra riddles. All three major parties, along with Nick Xenophon, seems, say they want needs-based funding for Australia's school system. So, why haven't we got it? Because they weren't prepared to take on the Roman Catholic uh, bureaucracy. It's really very simple. Um, I think I don't think that's the entire answer, but I think you've got 90% of it, Jean. I think that's the way they go. We're going to have a break now of the dogs program. Um, have a little bit of music and we shall return with more defending government schools if you're interested by the way before we have some music in our, in what we're talking about you can get hold of Jean's press release and all these ideas on our website at www.adogs.info that's www.adogs.info but now just a little music Well, welcome back to the Dogs Program here on 3CR 855 on the AM dial. Yeah, interesting article there um, from the Sydney Morning Herald discussing sort of the big picture. I think a, a lot of the problems are laid out in terms of the politics of the matter. But as Jean quite rightly pointed out as to why it is we don't have an equitable system, she puts it all down to the Roman Catholic Church. Um, uh, I said, well, are you, I think Jean's got the right of it, but... Um, yeah, uh, the Roman Catholic Church are not the only religious organisation in Australia that got their fingers in the public purse to educate their children according to their own peculiar tenets. Um, there's all sorts of religions that have got their fingers in the till. Um, everything from exclusive brethren to the Scientologists to the Seventh-day Adventists to Protestants of all stripes and indeed to various uh, followers of various Islamic faiths. But as far as some of the authorities are concerned when it comes to talking about lack of accountability and so on, they're not quite equal. I mean, the um, the uh, Auditor General here in Victoria 
announced and gave a, a very, very good report about what was going on in the Catholic Education Office, which was potentially a national scandal, but nothing seems to have happened. But as soon as the Muslim schools uh, have there's evidence and somebody blows the whistle on them from inside, it goes to court and they lose $19 million. Very interesting. I think it is very interesting, actually more than $19 million. In fact, I think we're going to go into this in some depth. It's interesting because um, up in New South Wales, the Administrative Appeals Tribunal took some money off a religious school saying that you're not doing the right thing with this money. You're siphoning off the money we've given you to educate your children in your school according to your peculiar religious tenets. And you've taken that money and you've given it to your religion. We've given you money to educate yeah. and, you've, and you've siphoned it off for, for, for your church yes. and, and, and for the individuals in those churches and all that sort of stuff. Um, and so they said, well, we're going to take your money away. You can't be doing that. Um, and they did. Um, but the particular church I'm talking about um, is the Islamic Council of Australia. And the particular school I'm talking about is the Malik Fad School in the west of Sydney. And just to give you some background before I go into this in detail, um, back in 2015, Christopher Pine um, said the education department was going to audit six Islamic schools, Islamic schools, um, not the other schools, Islamic schools that were affiliated with the Australian Federation of Islamic Councils after the Fairfax media had raised some reports. Now, the reports have been raised because people in the schools, as Jean will often tell you, you only hear about this when, when people at the coalface get grumpy. You only hear about um, terrible things going on in, in the Islamic schools uh, if people in the school tell you. Same is true for Catholic schools, same is true for all sorts of um, institutions that have a, a very hierarchical uh, culture that involves not telling people from the outside of the community what's going on inside. But when that does happen, when that does happen, um, usually all hell breaks loose because the, popula- the population at large um, gets, gets a bit grumpy about it. I haven't heard about any defunding of all of these places where children were sexually molested. (laughs) I haven't heard anything about money there. Uh, We're still waiting to see who's going to to reimburse the victims for all their uh, troubles over the years. But um, no, we're not. We don't hear about that, but we are hearing about this this matter, and it's a very interesting one indeed. It is a very interesting one. It has absolutely nothing to do with them. Nothing to do with um, uh, any form of um, uh, molestation no. um, in this particular case. But yeah, just to go back, um, the story was broken um, from some of the parents and some of the people inside the school. Christopher Pyme was, um, had to sit up and take notice, so he audited six Islamic schools around the country. This was the Islamic School of Brisbane, Islamic College of Melbourne, Islamic College of South Australia, the Islamic School of Canberra, the Langford Islamic College in Western Australia and the Malik Fad in Sydney. Um, and they were found to have breached the Education Act. Um, in February last year, some in Birmingham announced that the Malik Fad School will have $19 million worth of federal funding withdrawn amid the allegations of financial mismanagement. And just, just in April of that year, the Administrative Appeals Tribunal put a hold on the department's decision um, and they would, they would have an appeal. Well, just a few days ago, the decision of the Administrative Appeals Tribunal came down in favour of the government and $19 million that was uh, withdrawn has now been withdrawn. Now, why? Why did the government take the money away from the Malik Fad Islamic School in Sydney? Well, there's an interesting article written in The Guardian by Gareth Hutchins, um, but I, and I'll, I'll refer to that. But what I've got here um, to share with you listeners is actually the transcript of the Administrative Appeals Tribunal and what the judge actually said and why it was that he took the money away. And as I go through the reasons why, I would like the listeners to keep in mind what Jean was saying earlier, saying that last year the Auditor-General um, in Victoria and actually in, in the federal sphere both came down with reports, in Victoria in particular, that showed that the Catholic Education Office in Victoria had spent money where it should not have been spent. The Catholic Education Office in Victoria had, und- had, had given assurances that if given money by the taxpayers, that money would be spent in particular ways, and the Catholic Education Office in Victoria was shown, proven, not to have spent that money. And when Challenge said, yeah, well, that's just what we do, you should go away, and you're only saying that because yours are all anti-Catholic and stuff. 
And that was the answer. That that, that was the reply from Stephen Elder um, no, to to the Auditor General's report in there's Victoria. There's been no no uh, insight into any particular school at all. Um, in fact, the the accountability by the department in Canberra, uh, a, a, a bureaucracy that has been cut short and has got private school people employed in it. Uh, every school is only looked at once every 50 years. So this is all very interesting that they suddenly decide that there will be six schools of a particular faith that will be looked at in a particular way when they haven't done it for, for example, MLC or um, grammar or all of so, these schools. So which, much for anti-discrimination. Yeah. Something like that. Well, yeah, why not? I mean, you, I mean, you can look at it in terms of there's good religion and bad religion. People have opinions. I, I'm not going to get into that no. um, at all because I don't think that's the point. Yeah. Uh, going to the to the ruling for the appeal at the Administrative Appeals Tribunal, I'm I'm going to lay out what it is mm. that the Deputy President Bernard J McCabe had to say about why it was he was taking this money off this school, and it's very very clear. Because a school has to be run by an approved authority. And if it's a private school, the approved authority is a body corporate which, which conducts a school. A body corporate must satisfy the requirements of the act if it is to become and remain an approved authority. A lot of this stuff's quite circular, mm-hmm. but basically an approved authority has to be under the act. Now, to run a private school, a Catholic school, you also have to be an approved authority, which it must satisfy the requirements of the act. Now... This particular, uh, well, this particular deputy president of the Administrative Appeals Tribunal said the Malik Fad Islamic School has been an approved authority under the Act. However, it did not satisfy the requirements under Section 75 and Section 78 of the Act. And I'm just using numbers, but I'm explaining exactly what those means. These requirements were directed towards ensuring the approved authority conducts a school, firstly, on a not-for-profit basis and deals with financial assistance received in accordance with the law, and that authority is also a fit and proper person. Now, Jean can tell you all about corporations law. Corporations, or indeed approved authorities, are treated in the law as a person, like they are treated as an individual. So they must act, and I'll say that again, on a not-for-profit basis and must be a fit and proper person or a fit and proper organisation. Uh, the Malik Fad School failed on both of those counts, and so that's why their money was taken away. Their directors also have to be fit and proper people, and they have powers and they have responsibilities. Mm, and I'm going to come to that. But the minister said that this particular school has so many bad debts that were struck by previous managers and previous directors, and those deals prevent the school from complying with the Act, regardless of recent improvements. So... The approved authority which runs the school has all these contracts which are spending money, spending taxpayers' money um, in inappropriate ways, but these contractual arrangements must stay and so therefore no money is, is, is given. I'm going I'm to sort of elaborate on this as we go forward. But let's just talk about just a little bit of background. This particular school was incorporated way back in the late 90s. Now, it was a company. The company's constitution said it was there to provide liberal, scientific, cultural, artistic, and religious education. So, specifically, it is a religious education organisation. Seed money from Saudi Arabia. Mm. It was indeed set up with seed money from Saudi Arabia. So, there we have it. From 1989, taxpayers' money was going going for the purpose of religious education. Not quite sure what section one one six of the Constitution has to say about that, but that's but that's what's been happening. It was also established as a co-educational school, has three campuses, Greenacre, Hoxton Park and Bamron Hills, all in the western suburbs of Sydney, and it has two thousand five hundred students, kindergarten to year twelve. Large number of staff. Now, between twenty twelve and twenty fifteen, that's three years, it received in excess of seventy six million dollars in financial assistance from the Commonwealth. In 2016, it received nearly $13 million, and by the time of the hearing, it would be about $19 million. It has other income, to be sure. It received money from the state of New South Wales as well. It also received tuition income paid by parents. But the Commonwealth was by far the largest source of funding. Now, it seems that this Malik Fad school cannot run 
unless the taxpayers pay for it. So I just put that as just a fundamental point at the very oh, it's beginning. It's the same with almost every other school. Yeah. It is indeed. In Australia, at the moment, private schools, they're not private, not okay. in funding. So why was it that the tribunal found that this school was not not-for-profit, that is to say it found that this school was, 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 was profiting people inappropriately, and why this school was not a fit and proper organisation? Well... Just to just to describe what those two things are, a not-for-profit is a not conduct for profit any school in relation to which the application is made. Now, what I'm saying about that is, often not-for-profit organisations do make profit. Like it's just the way you some sometimes you have more money, sometimes you have less. That's not the problem. The problem is that a not-for-profit organisation cannot pay dividends. It cannot give individuals money uh, from the profit that is received from year to year. And this school did. Also, the fit and proper person, of course. <laughs> um, well, let's let's get to it. It's everyone agrees that the previous board, the board from 2015 and 2016, the one that's been sacked, uh, was inappropriate. So they got themselves a new board. Okay, the new board, I can tell you who's on the new board. It's really rather interesting. I think, Jean, you'd be interested in this. The new board consists of a number of people, the, these fit and proper people. Um, there is a Ms. Sylvia who has extensive experience in management schools. In fact, in fact, the Administrative Appeals Deputy President said, wow, you're, you're working so hard, I'm not sure you can be sitting on this board, you won't have time. Um, but she presented to him as a calm, well-intentioned professional. There's Mr Martin Baldwin, who's an educator who used to be a principal since 1976. Um, and there's Mr Jeff Dornan. He's also from a management school. He holds an MBA and served... Um, on the Association of School Business Administrations. There's Dr John Bennett, who's an adjunct professor of the School of Education at the University of New South Wales. There's Mr Jim McDowell, a legal practitioner and corporate executive. And Mr Robin Gurnoff, consultant. Uh, by the way, Mr Jim McDowell, I forgot to say, he's the Chancellor of the University of South Australia and the Chairman of the Australian Nuclear Science and Technology Organisation as well. So I think you'd be very interested to know that that is what that is what the fit and proper people they've they've pulled out are. Mm. However, even though these fit and proper people have been pulled out, uh, the Ministry of Appeals Tribunal said, actually, no, you're not, <laughs> because even though you've got new people involved, the ship hasn't changed. Even though you've got new figureheads, none of the situations changed. You still have debts to pay. You still got contracts to pay out, and those contracts involve profit to individuals. And so, therefore, you cannot be fit and proper because of the contractual arrangements. Now, they're trading insolvent. Uh, well, they're not trading insolvent. They're trading. They're trading as an organisation which has mm. to pay people who, yeah. who 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 are, who are getting dividends from from that particular organisation. Right. Oh, yes. So that's, that's, that's the interesting and thing. And so the so the government has taken the money away mm. and say now these contracts have to be honoured in some private way. Maybe the Saudi Arabians will come to their rescue once and, more. And who gets the dividends? Well, no. the Federation of Islamic Councils. It isn't is it? indeed the Federation of Islamic Councils, who, who are very nice people, I'm sure, but I'm sure they also like their money, which is due to them, their taxpayers' money, which they feel is due to them, which where the dogs do not. Now, I go into the workings of the Administrative Appeals Tribunal, which is probably quite boring in many ways. I go into this for one very particular reason. These, for these people, the gig's up. Maybe they'll, maybe they'll reorganise and restructure and maybe do it better in the future because they haven't quite understood how things work here in Australia. I don't know. That's not really the point. The point is for these people, the gig is up. They have been put to trial. They have been found wanting. But what they're doing is just a tiny little teardrop in an ocean of ridiculous funding arrangements that are going on in Australia. Now, we can talk about, you know, as Jean was mentioning before, you know, the Catholic Church. Well, yes, you can talk about that because they get the vast majority of the money that goes to private schools in Australia. It's just a question of the numbers. And they just so, don't call what they pay to other people dividends, that's all. No. It's all in the words well, and the these, game. And these the, people at the Malik Fah School didn't call them dividends either. Mm, but no. the Administrative Appeals Tribunal found that they were. Right. So if you go onto the My School website and go on to the financial arrangements for any Catholic school in Victoria, you will see a line item. And that line item 
is for the bishop. Now that's not a dividend. Not, not in fact, it's the dividend. It's, it's the bishop's capital fund. Mm. It's, it's not. Right. Mm. It's not a dividend. It just goes. It goes to the bishop, so he can build things. Mm. Maybe he'll build things in schools. I don't know. But 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 that's where the money goes. Now the Catholic school, of course, can say, well, the bishop gets the money, but that's the money that the parents give. The money that the taxpayers give gets paid on the education. The money that the parents give gets paid to the bishop. Mm. I'm not sure that's what the parents think. Mm. Um, well, they're not up in the Administrative Appeals Tribunal after the Auditor General found that the money they were given wasn't being spent in the right place. Um, and, and the Auditor General did find, did find that the money was not being spent where, where it was supposed to be. And then he got sacked. And then, well, yeah, no, he's, oh, yeah, no he did actually. Both of them. Uh, one got sacked. Oh, but yeah, one got sacked um, and the other one um, was a temporary one. I, I don't know who's the Auditor General in Victoria these days. We'll have to find out and let you know next week. But until next week... Until next week, we are the dogs. We are the defenders of government schools, digging into the Administrative Appeals Tribunal all over the place if you can find stuff. If you do, and if you are indeed interested in what we've been talking about, you can contact us at our website, which is www.adogs.info. That's www.adogs.info. But until then, until next week, it's bye for now. Bye for now. I know.